This poem's from Cecilia Vicuña, New and Selected Poems, recently published by Kelsey Street Press. And this is a poem that she wrote in 1968 called The Brilliance of Orifices. I can even tell you a story, talk about my boyfriend's sweet brick skin, its Indian origin and volcanic appearance, sight of seven craters, each with its own characteristics. One, for example, has lips and is the patient's crater, the funniest and most witty. It also releases poetry, my boyfriend's primary charm. There are two craters, however, through which things do not exit, but enter. They are called entrances for music and are somewhat wrinkled, crudely known as ears. They are the softest love devices which my boyfriend never cleans, afraid he'll dull or scratch them like someone who destroys a record and with it a fount of miracles. The function of the last two craters is to allow things to exit and also to enter. They cover a moist organ and go foos, foos when functioning. To them, we owe the grace of aroma and funk, which is why they are called awakeners or indexes of sensitivity. And fortunate is he of the fully developed awakeners, and they call my boyfriend Lucky Fortunato, even though his name is Claudio. I translated that. Cecilia wrote it in Spanish. Cecilia Vicuña is a Chilean-born artist. She works in a sort of interdisciplinary fashion. She's a visual artist. She's a poet. She's a performance artist, not with the intention of moving forever, but she went to England in 1972 on an art scholarship She was in her early 20s at that point. And then the military coup in Chile occurred in 1973, September 11th, 1973. There is just this danger of returning as someone who was a very vocal supporter of the Allende government, like a lot of young people were at that time. And she knew people who were disappeared. And at some point, she moved to Colombia And she lived there for a while and then um, eventually came to the United States in 1980 and has been in New York ever since. Her history is interesting. What was more interesting to me, the evolution of her work because of these historical circumstances, not having to leave, but unable to return because of this, this coup d'etat that would change her life forever and force her in many ways to change the way that she practiced art. So she was painting up until that point, And then she started, her artwork started changing in England even before the military coup. But that it was very clear from a book that she published called Sabor a Mi by Bojas Press in England, she was putting this book together before the coup took place. And then immediately when 
she began to hear of what was happening. And even in the days leading up to the coup, she began to write these responses and include kind of diary entries. So immediately that book began to be sort of broken open, the original intention and respond immediately to what's happening. And you think of her performances are always responding to the moment, always responding to the space she's in, to the political moment, to she's not just coming with a book that was published a few years ago. And even if she does read those poems, I feel like they're always being broken open to respond to the moment. So I think that when I began to translate her work, I didn't have a full sense of all of this history and where she came from. I began to learn just through our friendship a lot of it and being invited into her life. I worked as a, as a temp down in the financial district and I would walk over to her apartment in Tribeca and I would have dinner with her and translate some of her poems. And, you know, there was a real sort of symbiotic relationship there. And so I thought, I really saw her as someone who was a model for me of what it meant to be an artist. My name is Rosal Cala. I teach at the University of Texas, El Paso. I've been teaching there since 2004. And I am originally from New Jersey, so not too far from where we're sitting right now. And that seems relevant to me. Patterson, New Jersey specifically, which um, literary people always have many questions about. And I've published three books of poetry. The first one, Undocumentaries, and the second one, The Lust of Unsentimental Waters. They were both published by Shearsman Books in England. And my most recent book is My Other Tongue, or Mother Tongue, or Her Tongue, or Their Tongue. The title can be read in various ways. And that was recently published by Future Poem Books in New York. And I have a bunch of translations, too, including Cecilia Vicuña, New and Selected, Bestiary by Lourdes Vasquez, which was published a few years ago. I think it was my first full-length book by Bilingual Press, a book I co-translated with Monica de la Torre called uh, Mauve Sea Orchids by Lila Semborain, and Guardians of the Secret which is the title of a Jackson Pollock painting. And I translated that, and it was published by Noemi Press, and that's also by Lila Semborain. My first act of translation, I'd have to think about it not in literary terms, but just in familial terms. I think it's probably not uncommon that immigrants or the children of immigrants often serve in this role of uh, translators or interpreters for their families. And that was certainly the case for me and for my brothers. So we were often used, used sounds bad, but <laughs> we were asked to serve as interpreters in various situations. So from a very young age, we were in the doctor's office or um, at school between our teachers and our parents interpreting what was being said. So I think that was really the first, you know, way in which I saw translation. And I can't say that I always loved having to serve that role and also having to be a mediator for my parents in the world. But it certainly prepared me for that role later on as a literary translator and also to see very early on both the possibilities of 
I guess, getting something across in two languages, but also the limits of it, that there are things that are said in one language that really can't be fully captured in another, or that maybe the thought itself really requires two languages for completion. But there's also the possibility of supplementing what one wanted to say so that maybe that misunderstanding or that deviation from the original thought grows and allows us to think about something in a different way. And I think I wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't have had the the possibility of what language can and can't do without the original experience of being that child interpreter. Mondo. La poesía es una invitación de la realidad para que la realidad cambie de bando. El sexo es la mirada de Dios, la llave de la luz del día. ¿Quién sabe de la luz? El gran coito luminoso. Sufrimiento y felicidad son lo mismo para el alma que se ríe de todo. En la luminosidad futura vamos a carecer de contingencia. El mar es el cielo de otro cielo. Hay que traer al futuro y instalarlo entre los muslos como cosa ya hecha. Vida instantánea y no mierda de vida. El sexo es incorruptible. Entre un hueco de muslo y una pizca de noche, Uchmal, marzo 1967. Di de ellas, oh vagina negra, oh vagina roja, oh vagina de oro. Piernas de marfil y no más. Marzo 1967. Los pensamientos se digieren como un cereal. Constituyen un alimento tan preciado como el natural. Pueblos sin comida pero con ideas han sobrevivido durante siglos. Pero los pueblos bien alimentados y sin ideas se pudren en el olvido. Soy lo que está a punto de amanecer lo que se eleva en las señales de humo. Llevo a mis espaldas a los que lloran por mi incahuasi perdidos. 1966. Mi lenguaje es sobrio, elegante y delicado como las nubes del alba. Mi lenguaje es rastrero como la prostituta que íntimamente soy. Spanish is my mother tongue and my brothers went to school and brought back English. That's my guess is that English came not too long after I started speaking Spanish, but it was brought home by my brothers because my parents never learned English. So in our home, it was always just Spanish. In fact, my father required us to speak Spanish at home which sometimes felt like a burden that we weren't allowed to sort of bring English into our home. And I've, I've written about this in various ways. But as things are, the Spanish in the home was limited to some extent. Um, and also there was Spanish with neighbors and in my neighborhood and with friends. So Spanish wasn't just delimited, you know, to, to a domestic space. But English, at least the formal education of English, began to take precedence in some way. So it wasn't until I was in college 
that I decided that I really wanted to focus on learning sort of the mechanics of of Spanish, of learning grammar. And because when I was in high school, I remember having to take, I had to take a Spanish class and there was a sort of like a quiz in the beginning of the class to determine what our level of Spanish was. And, and I just, I was very cocky about it. I remember because I just thought, well, you know, I know Spanish, this isn't going to be a problem. I'm going to, they're, they're going to say, why are you taking this class? I can just skip Spanish. But in that quiz, he, uh, the teacher asked us to spell out numbers from one to 10 or one to 20. I can't remember. And I bombed it. I couldn't spell them. I was really frustrated because there were kids there who didn't know Spanish at all, but had taken some form of Spanish in their schooling and they could spell one to 20 and I couldn't, yet I could have a conversation. Um, This seemed a great injustice to me (laughs) in high school. And I was very ashamed of it. And I think that shame still, I mean, that language shame, I talk to my students about language shame all the time, but it really is the foundation for all of my poetry. I mean, I don't think I would have become a poet if I didn't have language shame. I'm always sort of feeling like I'm not using language correctly, English or Spanish. And I would say that, you know, my parents didn't have many years of schooling themselves. So their own ability to read and write Spanish was limited because of the education. They could obviously speak it fluently but I taught myself Spanish in a way where I became very well versed in its literature of both, you know, Spain and Latin America and learned the grammar as much as possible. But I still have my limitations. I could speak it fluently, I can write it pretty well, but I always feel like, you know, English is still the language that I move most comfortably in, even though I don't know if I would even say. I feel a great level of comfort with English either. What kind of Spanish did I set out to learn? I'm trying to think about this. And I think I I learned, especially in terms of conjugating verbs, I learned both vosotros and ustedes because I grew up with a variety of Spanish speakers. So yes, my Spanish accent, as people will point out, sounds like from Spain, where my parents are from. But other people will point out that it actually doesn't sound quite Spanish from Spain either. And it's kind of a a mix. So I'm often asked, wherever I am in the Spanish speaking world, where are you from, including in Spain? So people can never pin me down or they're often confused by my Spanish. So I think that what I set out to learn Spanish, I was also eager to, I guess, learn every way of speaking it. And I have a habit, I guess it's a good habit or maybe it's a bad habit of immediately adapting to whatever Spanish someone else is speaking. So, you know, in all the different Spanishes, there's so many ways of saying the same thing. As my students sometimes point out, or one student pointed out once, that there are so many words for the same vegetable or fruit, depending on what region you're in. So that I will immediately adapt, even though if, if I call it X and they call it Y, I'll start calling it Y. And I think that's just my nature as kind of a mediator or as someone who who wants to communicate is to immediately adopt the way that they're speaking. And so for a long time, I was using the vosotros 
because that's what my parents use. But I use ustedes much more now because I'm not around many people who use vosotros. And so ustedes feels very comfortable to me. So I don't know. I feel like I don't think I set out to do anything but to fit in. <laughs> I just not feel weird and uncomfortable most of the time. How did I meet Cecilia Vicuña? So I was at Brown uh, from 94 to 96. And I think it was in my first year there that someone I knew who was in ethnomusicology came back from New York and he said, I met this woman who was uh, performing with Allen Ginsberg at the Poetry Project. And I think that you'd really like her work. Um, she writes in Spanish and I got you her book. So that was Unraveling Words in the Weaving of Water, which Grey Wolf published. And it was translated by Elliot Weinberger and Suzanne Jill Levine. So I read the book and I was really blown away by it. And I think one of the reasons this person thought that I might like it is because I was in this journey of reading poetry in Spanish and also kind of toying with the idea of being a translator. And I mean, the, the poetry itself was difficult to translate. It was obvious that, that the things that she was doing with language were difficult to translate. And I thought the translations plus the the note about the translations were really interesting to me. And I can't remember whether I visited her first in Tribeca or whether she came to Brown first, but I wrote her this letter saying how much I loved her work. And I, when I was at Brown, it was like the first year of email or something. So people were still writing letters. This letter about how much I loved the book. And she wrote me back and she invited me to visit her. And then I set up a reading for her at Brown. And it was in this little library, a really beautiful little library but what I didn't expect is that so many people were going to show up and it was just packed with people. And I didn't know what Cecilia Vicuña was going to do. I had never seen her perform. I only knew her from her poems, her text-based poems. And I was really freaked out because I had a really good idea what poetry readings were like up until that point. And then she did something that really surprised me. She often doesn't start at the podium so she might be in the audience and people who don't know what she looks like or who she is may not know that she's in fact the invited guest so she's in the audience and then you know after the usual introduction by someone you might hear some singing and she doesn't begin every performance exactly the same way but this is sort of one example and this is what happened I I heard singing, I introduced her, I heard some singing, and I didn't know what was going on, and I didn't know why I couldn't find Cecilia, and I had prepared this introduction, and then she started to get up from the audience and started to weave people with thread, and I remember C.D. Wright was there, Rosemary Waldrop was there, I believe they were, they were part of the weaving 
um, at least in my memory it is because it's so beautiful to think of C.D. Wright and Rosemary Walder being woven together in my memory in this way. Um, I'm going to get emotional if I think about it, but it's just really a beautiful moment because all of these women who I admire so much were there, you know, and it was th that first experience with Cecilia. So she finally makes it up to the podium, much to my relief. And um, she starts sort of singing, chanting these poems. And so that was really this, you know, kind of mind-blowing thing that poems weren't necessarily text-based. I had known about performance poetry, and I'd seen performance poetry, but I'd never seen anything quite like this. So from then on, you know, we got to know each other over the course of that following year, and I would visit her. And then I moved to Edinburgh, Scotland in 96 after I finished my MFA. And I don't know how coincidentally it was, but I think it was coincidentally, she had a show in Edinburgh and she had this, this installation and the person I was living with in Edinburgh had a small press and he wanted to put together um, a book to be published in conjunction with the installation called Word and Thread, which is included in the new and selected poems. And she asked me if I wanted to translate it because I was there. I had taken a translation course with uh, Keith Waldrop and I had translated some things, you know, mostly as sort of academic exercises. So she asked me if I would translate this book and Cecilia put her trust in me that I would be able to do this. And I did. And ever since then, I've been translating her work. So we're talking from 96 until now, which seems crazy. But yeah, that's how it happened. I want to begin with a poem that Rosa did not want to. That's not true. It's not true. <laughs> I like to sing things that are like that. And it is a poem, it is a love poem I wrote for her. Quinto GP. Y las dos eran ninguna. Federico García Lorca. I'm not making art. I am making myself. Nam June said. So the extra part of translating performance versus for the page. All of that happened gradually. So even though I saw Cecilia in performance many times, I was still translating the poems on the page. And Elliot Weinberger says this in his introduction to Unraveling Words and the Weaving of Water, but he says that he really, what he had in mind in translating her work was how the poems were going to be performed. Despite that, I think that I really kept them separate. I thought of sort of the text-based poems as text-based of working on the page. And then whatever Cecilia did in performance was just something separate, right? 
But so Word and Thread was in 96. And then I entered a PhD program at SUNY Buffalo in 1999. When I was in SUNY Buffalo, I uh, started to learn about ethnopoetics and some of the people associated with ethnopoetics. And I was studying with Dennis Tedlock, who is sort of a key figure. And I was learning sort of practices of transcription. And I started thinking about Cecilia Vicuña's performances. And again, as an academic exercise in his classes, I would transcribe some of her performances and thinking about what it means to convey a performance on the page. You know, and at that point, I was also reading Edouard Glissant's Poetics of Relation and thinking about just this kind of less closed off way of thinking about poetry and thinking about the relationship between uh, poetry on the page and orality. And there was just so many things I was thinking about at the time that got me to the point of wanting to write about translation and performance in contemporary poetry or in 20th century poetry. And Cecilia Vicuña was part of that sort of investigation. I mean, I, I was also writing about Langston Hughes and his translations um, and the importance of, of his translations and sort of the formation of his own poetics. So I dedicated a chapter of my dissertation on performance and translation in 20th century poetry to Celia Vicuña. And out of that, out of that chapter, which also included transcriptions of her performances, came Spit Temple. So really the seed was at SUNY Buffalo out of those classes, out of my dissertation. I never did anything with my dissertation beyond that, but I pulled sort of those key ideas for Spit Temple. So with the transcriptions, what we did is I would go to Cecilia Vicuña's apartment, and this was over the course of, of some years, both when I was a graduate student and then after. And Cecilia herself had never really given much thought to how to preserve these performances, which are ephemeral. I mean, in some ways, the precarious is the, at the heart of her poetics, she hadn't really considered should the performances be archived in some way. So she had these tapes, both CDs and sort of like regular videotapes in a back closet that basically whoever, you know, the people who had invited her to perform would give her, oh, here's a copy of your performance. So I asked her to show me where these were and they were just, you know, the kind of like a dusty back closet. And I started just pulling them and watching them in her apartment, um, trying to find ones that I thought were interesting in some way that would that I could convey on the page. And so I went through many of them before sort of selecting the ones that end up in the book. And there were always the issues of a bad recording, um, something can't be heard or seen, um, some of the tape is damaged, having to go over it several times to hear what's being said. And in the beginning, I was very frustrated by all of these problems. You know, I considered them problems. And then I, I tried to remember that 
the problems could be conveyed as well and that the problems were productive, that there was something about inaudibility that could be included and contextualized in some way and made sense of. I didn't want to pretend that this was a kind of unmediated access to the performance, that there was something there. There was a machine and there was a camera person and there was me and there was a time and a place and we couldn't just go back in time. There, The frame, and this is you know, what I learned from study of ethnopoetics and of Dennis Tedlock, is that to acknowledge that there is this frame. The translation is definitely associated to time, I think. What I have learned with each one of my translators is infinite. You know, because the translator brings to the poem something that the poem did not have in mind. An interpretation, an angle, a view, a rhythm, a tone that expands your understanding of the poem. Because the poem is the animal. I think you say sinking its mouth in the stream. And that is not a metaphor. This is actually literally true. You asked earlier about the layers of transcription and translation. And I'll say that Cecilia Vicuña has lived here since 1980. Most of the performances that she's done and continues to do are in English because she's invited to places in the U.S. And what I mean by English is that the expectation is that they're going to be mainly in English, but of course she weaves in multiple languages in them. So the transcriptions are, they're the words that she conveyed, but the question that I needed to ask myself through the transcription is how do I convey other things other than the word and the meaning of the word behind it, which is the level of softness or loudness, the pauses, what other things give something meaning besides the words themselves? So I was trying to convey that on the page. And of course, these are all lessons that I learned from Dennis. So use the page to convey maybe the contours of it. But there was something else, and I think this goes back to my reading of Glissant or Walter Mignolo, which is, what do I do with the multilingual aspect of the performances? What part do I translate and not translate? And that that was kind of a an interesting question for me because I was thinking about what does it mean to witness a performance versus read a page and who would be in the audience. So people can be in the audience that may not understand the Spanish or may not understand her, you know, her use of some words in Quechua, for example. Would there be a translation available in a performance? And so should I be translating that on the page? And I came to the conclusion that, again, to, to make it seem as if we're recreating the performance is false. We're not going to recreate the people in the room. I can't assume that everyone in the room didn't understand the different languages that were there. There was no ideal reader or unideal reader to consider that the page was another opportunity. So I could do several things there. I could convey the contours of the performance. But really, the performance was going to be recreated in the performance of the reader. The reader was going to 
you know, in some way reperformed this. And I could have footnotes where I would translate the Spanish. So there was a lot of text within the transcription in Spanish that I then translated in the footnotes. And that was interesting too, to then have to make sure that I heard what she was performing in the Spanish, because if she's chanting, it's sometimes difficult to hear what she's chanting, and then to translate that. And so there were a few ways that I negotiated that. Sometimes I went over it with her and she would tell me this is what I was saying, or she would say, I don't remember what I was saying, or I can't even hear it. You know, She didn't always clarify things. Sometimes I would go back to, if I knew the poem that she was reading, that I would go back to the book and see if I can sort of corroborate. And sometimes I would just tell myself, well, do you go by your listening or do you corroborate this? And sometimes the listening led the perhaps way that I had misheard it was as interesting as maybe the official version if I went back to the book. So I think, okay, let's leave the mishearing in. And sometimes I would point that out in the note and sometimes I wouldn't because I think performance allows for the error in hearing that you don't get on the page. And I think that I also didn't want to undermine my own argument that what Cecilia Vicuña is doing is upsetting the centrality of the book in our culture, right? That it's not just about the official version all the time or that there's an authority called the book, but there, there's something else and, and it's about the exchange. And that, that exchange in the moment of me listening was the listening, right? It was whatever I was hearing. I wanted to honor that and not always go back to the book and kind of verify that my listening was correct. Oh, and I, I should say, this is, I think, an important part of it is that, okay, so this is what happened, is that I contacted people and said, you know, have you been to a Cecilia Vicuña performance? Do you remember which one it was? And I would try to match up videotapes or audio with the performances that they had been to because I wanted someone who had witnessed it rather than sending them an audio tape or videotape and having them write about it. And so I asked them, you know, I could send you the videotape and audio tape, but can you write from memory? Can you remember what it was like to be there? I mean, I left it up to them how they wanted to do it. But I remember Jenna Osmond telling me that she had been to the Art in General performance and she, you know, she agreed to write about it. And I said, I could send you this videotape, but I'm having a really hard time transcribing it. And I don't know if I should use it. And I transcribed only a part of it. And I realized that what I ended up transcribing, which were maybe 20 words, because it was so frustrating to listen to it. Because um, there's just a lot, a lot of tedium involved to transcription as well. So just sort of transcribing some of it and then realizing that the transcriptions with all of the gaps and everything else produced a really interesting poem. So that even though we don't have, at least on the page, much documentation of the performance, we have this kind of traces of performance, right? This kind of detritus of performance that's left on the page. And then Jenna Osmond's reflection or testimony of the thing that she witnessed alongside some of her observations of 
the videotape. So I felt like Spit Temple was an opportunity to not provide anything that was an official version, but together in these pieces, and maybe this is a very sort of Glissantian idea, but together with all of this kind of archipelago of participation and witnessing and relationships to her work, we would get a sense of what she did. <laughs> That's true. Um, okay, here it is. Art in General, 1990. Art in General, New York, May 19th, 1999. With one end of a thread in her hand and the other tied to her ankle, Vicuña hands a segment of it to a group of people in one corner of the room. She then pulls the thread towards the center of the room, creating a V-shaped tether between audience and performer. Beneath her installation, a net of threads that sags from the gallery's ceiling. She arranges a small pillow where she'll sit for the performance. What follows is a compendium of creaks and inaudibilities. A. We. Core. S. Messengers of able, deathless force, the mysterious steps, fog shall challenge, the suffering earth, the light shall not. In the cloud net of her hair, a music of griefless things, griefless things shall weave, shall weave shall weave un poquito un poquito un poquito crack crack cr don't you hear me you hear the floor audience yes la puerta interior de la palabra Esta, art, art, the arms spinning, setting, the warp, an echo of the hand, are in rye, echoing, or is a wa, echoing the arm, are, the word or, only a music of hands. Manos. Crack. Crack. When I first came to this space, I thought I wanted to do a piece that would be just the squeaky floors, and if I... You see, this is really happening. Noise, this. I don't have to do anything. It just happened. <laughs> what I mentioned before was that I tried to pair up writers with 
performances by Celia Vicuña that she had attended. And one of the performances that I uh, transcribed was one at um, the Poetry Project, St. Mark's Poetry Project in 2002. And I couldn't identify anyone um, who had been to this performance, or maybe I just couldn't find someone who would write about it. But I wanted to transcribe it. And Cecilia remembered that she had written a letter to her mother about this performance. So we decided to include the letter, which I translated as the kind of non-academic response piece to, to the performance. Bacuña writes to her mother regarding the St. Mark's performance on May 15th, 2002. Yes, mommy, it was the most beautiful reading in the world for me. As always, I begin not knowing what I am going to do. I am introduced, people applaud, and as they wait, I don't make a move. I am nowhere to be found. I sit quietly in the back with a spool of white thread in my hand, and suddenly I lift the spool and make it spin as if it were a spindle, and at that moment I realize that I too have become a living spindle and begin to listen to its slight sound, almost imperceptible, while turning and without thinking, I begin to do a little dance beneath the spindle, placing the spindle next to the ears of some people so that they too can hear it turning. I walk down the wide aisle in the center of the hall, mimicking my movements, the thread begins to fall to the floor, like a small cascade undulating back and forth, it goes forward as I approach the stage, then back again until it forms a tangle. Then I take the spool and throw it forward towards the podium. Once there, I grab the end of the thread and put it in my mouth saying, that is my mother. And I begin to sing a little song as if in your voice and say, that is what she would do with a thread in her mouth. And I continue to sing and read the poem from my new book that is dedicated to you. When I am done, everything is like in another world, and it is difficult to return to this one. It is a gesture of love towards you who taught me to weave and play with thread while singing as you do. Le gusto, love, your sex. It wasn't really till Spit Temple when I was sort of giving her work more of historical and theoretical context that I knew that I wanted to continue to work with her. And when she presented me with the idea of the new and selected, you know, she said, you know, Kelsey Street wants to do a selected. And I know that you're really busy. And I think it was probably when she first talked about it, my daughter was much younger, my daughter's nine now. So it was just in this moment of, of motherhood and the first years of teaching. It was just all of these things that she knew that it might be a hard thing for me to do. And she said, you know, you would be my first choice to translate and edit this book, but I know that you're really busy and I could possibly ask someone else. But it was that moment when she said, I can ask someone else that I thought you are not asking someone else. Like, I feel like I've done all of this work and thinking about your work and I want to make sure that this book is done right. And it's not that, I mean, I'm sure there are so many other people who love her work and are invested in her work and have written about her work who would have done an amazing job, probably a better job than I did. But there was this way that I felt very protective of her work and 
I wanted to be a part of the process. So we started down that road probably 2014. And then I got an NEA to do the book, which was very helpful. Thank you, NEA. And she and I began to select work. And as is Vicuña's process with me is that she's very collaborative. So she wanted me also, also to suggest work. She chose work that she wanted included, but then she asked me what, what things did I want to include. And the book includes my own translation. Some of them were done specifically for this book. There are a lot of poems that hadn't been translated, particularly the newer work, which I read for this interview. And then I retranslated some of the poems that I had done in the 90s because I feel like not only am I a better translator, but I've thought about her work more deeply now than I did in the 90s. And then I had the opportunity to translate them, which was kind of tricky because some of those translations, and I've, I discussed this with Cecilia at the time, they were done in such a crazy time of me, well, being in my 20s and being, you know, kind of underemployed, or I should say maybe I was overemployed and underpaid is probably more like it, but I was, you know, working in a, a bookstore and temping and doing all things to kind of survive and also going to her place to translate. Was I ever working in the bookstore at that point? Maybe I wasn't. But in any case, I was kind of hustling all the time. And so a lot of these things, like I would, you know, God bless these jobs. They didn't know, but I would like fax translations to her. You know, I would just say use whatever I could at that moment, like photocopy and use fax and like, you know, just try to do these, you know, in, in the sort of time that I had. And they were done with that spirit of ignorance and sort of gut instinct and little time and not overthinking it and this needs to get done and this is going to appear in this catalog and it needs to be done by, by the time the show opens. And I didn't want to kill that. Like I didn't want to kill the record of that moment and kill the even mistranslations at point that were kind of interesting. Like why would I translate it that way? So I had to balance the knowledge I had now and the expertise and skill I have now and the kind of youthful instinct and stupidity that went into the first ones. I, I, cause I, I mean, I don't know about, you know, the listeners out there who are middle-aged, but I have a real tenderness. I'm feeling lately a real tenderness towards the me in my twenties and who she was. And I think that I don't want to destroy her work. So there was a balancing act with that. But it also includes translations by a lot of other people, because even though I've been translating her since 1996, there have been other translators in that period before me and during me, during me sounds weird, but <laughs> during the time that I've been working with her, who've also translated things and their translations are included. So you have Suzanne Jill Levine and Elliot Weinberger, but also Esther Allen, who's an amazing translator, Edwin Morgan who's Scottish and has passed away, Anne Twitty, and she uh, translated a poem called Amada Amiga or Beloved Friend that is such, such a good translation of that poem. Christopher Winks, James O'Hearn, and Ura Joan Noel, and of course the introduction by Daniel Brzezinski, who 
is an amazing translator. I hope everyone knows of uh, Raul Zurita and s- some other things as well. But so this book includes all of those translators. And so the part of the work too was to include poems that were translated by others from other collections and have selections in the book. And also part of my work as an editor was to verify just that they were correct, not the translations, but as things happen, you know, Cecilia would send me files of the books, the translated books. And part of editing that no one talks about is just like the tedium of it, just like making sure that the line breaks are correct or that a stanza wasn't broken up incorrectly and that it's represented on a page and something didn't get lost. So just going over it because the thing that would keep me up at night besides my own translations, is that I would mess up someone else's work. And I'm sure that there are errors in here. There's I no book, I'm sure, in the world that doesn't have an error, but this is the thing that really concerned me in addition to sort of conceptually like what it was going to look like and the poems and Celia Vicuña was crucial in that part because there are a lot of, there's a lot of visual work in here which she added in and the, the look of the book has so much to do with her eye as a visual artist and her ability to think about visual objects. I dealt mostly with the text. You know, I, I sometimes think it's a small miracle, especially when you're passing PDFs. Or, I mean, now it's, I think it's a little bit easier with this whole Google Doc thing, but you're having so many people read it and make comments and I was almost convinced that we were going to end up with more mistakes than we started off with because one person is like correcting and then the other one, it was just a lot, a lot, a lot of work, but I'm so proud of it. I mean, I have it on my lap now and it's, you know, it's almost like the size of a phone book if people still remember phone books. So it sort of feels like that. It feels substantial in that way. And that's all I'll say about it. So, I mean, I guess I'll talk about the impact of translation in my work. I talked about how translation has always been a central feature in my thinking and in my poetry, even before I became a translator, uh, because of my role as a child interpreter. In fact, I have a, a poem in, I think it's my first book called Child Interpreters, Poetry has always dealt with this question of translation and having to sort of live between languages or constantly moving between languages. And I think that's really what made me a poet because I I think of poetry as another language. It's not English. It's not Spanish. It's this other form. And so we're always translating things into poetry And so poetry was this kind of other space to say what what was impossible to say in any language. And in some ways it was difficult to write a good poem, but I also felt like it was, I was able to not feel the kind of shadow of either inheritance I mean, I guess there is a literary inheritance that one always feels the shadow of, but because I felt like I didn't belong anywhere in any kind of literary tradition specifically, I felt like poetry was a way where I can sort of carve my own space, but also I wasn't writing in the language of my family. 
So it was kind of a freedom away from that, from that kind of grip. But also I was able to choose my family through poetry. And that, you know, felt like a kind of freedom. You know, it didn't it didn't occur to me till later, like all of the politics of poetry and all of the different, you know, schools and movements and all of that. I think in the beginning, I obviously didn't really know about that nor cared about it. And in some ways, maybe I've come back to that where I feel like, especially being in El Paso, like I kind of don't have these particular loyalties to anything. And my poetry can can take from anywhere. And it takes, or I should say takes is not the right word. It, it dialogues widely with a lot of, you know, work that I'm teaching or I've read from Latin America, Spain and the US. But obviously in this one, there's, you know, the reference to New York School, which was such an early influence because of, of one of my first mentors, David Shapiro, who was teaching art history at William Patterson College, which is now a university in New Jersey. And he was, you know, even before Cecilia, so the, this first poet that I met, he always had such great stories about like Frank O'Hara, you know, and I had my brother Carlos gave me my first book of poetry, which was Frank O'Hara when I was in high school because he liked the cover. My brother, who's a graphic designer, and it was like he had his first job in graphic design and there was this used bookstore across the street. He knew I was already in love with poetry in high school and writing poetry, and I was mainly reading the romantics because of the Smiths. And, um, and he gave me this book and I fell in love with Frank O'Hara. It was crazy because I had never read anything like it before. This was like someone writing... Um, about a a place I wanted to live in as an adult. You know, I wanted to like move to New York, like stat. I was only twenty minutes away from it, so I knew like I needed to get there. But also, even though Frank O'Hara was dead, his writing was the closest to a kind of living language or living English that I understood, as opposed to the Romantics, for example. Right. So I'm you know, reading Frank O'Hara and just thinking, oh, it's so urban and it's so, urbane is not a word I would have used then, but I would have thought like, like so cool, you know, like, like these, the lives that these people live is just in the friends that he has and the references. And I just wanted to, to be that. And then, so when I met David Shapiro and he would, you know, talk about Frank O'Hara and these other people that he knew from from that time, you know, Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones. And I wasn't a creative writing major, I was a journalism major. And so I had this kind of like weird entry, kind of, um, you know, self-styled, pick from here, pick from there. I was reading Lorca. My parents sent me to this like Spanish class in a church so that I wouldn't lose my Spanish as I grew older. So it was like me and other kids of immigrants taking the Spanish class in a church on Sundays after mass. We'd read a lot of literature. And I remember reading like Ruben Darío for the first time, like La Princesa está triste, que tendrá la princesa? And just being like, whoa, like just like, it was just, I would take from everywhere and I would listen to everything. And I just thought, you know, that's what I want to do, right? And I want people to read me and also feel that connection. So in any case, back to New York schools, so obviously this is the the sort of vestiges of my love affair. And I would say vestiges, I'm still sort of like in love with New York school and Bernadette Mayer and heritage speaker mixes all of these things. Like one, 
being bilingual, wanting to teach my daughter Spanish and the difficulty of that because my partner doesn't speak Spanish, but we're on the border and she goes on the border with Mexico and she goes to a bilingual school. So she's getting Spanish at school. Uh, she's getting more Spanish at school sometimes than she gets in the home at this point because her dad and I speak to each other in English. But in this poem, the heritage speaker, I realize now, even as I'm saying this to you, this is better than therapy um, and cheaper. But heritage speaker, you know, is this term that people use for kids who grow up with this other language that's passed down to them. And it may not be necessarily the language that they, they study or that they learn at school, but that you know, these poets also become part of my heritage, right? That I'm speaking their language. And it happens to me, I don't think anybody has ever said to me, oh, you're obviously influenced by Bernadette Mayer. But when I read lines like, you know, these little rhymes like, and build a woman out of me that is not her mother, but some propriety, it's so Bernadette Mayer to me. It's like I hear her in my head. Like I'm just riffing on Mayer. I'm riffing on her her little sing-songy rhymes sometimes where she goes, she goes very high and then she goes low again. And she kind of, you could tell that she's kind of delighting in switching registers and having fun with it. And like, you know, it's like Juliana Spar talks about this, how like obviously Bernadette Mayer knows a lot about Shakespeare, but she knows so much about Shakespearean sonnets that then she can do this other completely different thing with it and not have to kind of pay her loyalties to the form. And so this poem is about a literary heritage, a familial heritage, you know, linguistic heritage, and also the anxiety of kind of finding your own way or are you doing it right? And who, you know, having those conversations, like my imaginary conversation with Bernadette Mayer in the shower because as you know, when you have, I wrote this when Raquel was a baby. So it's like the only time that you have time on your own is when you take a shower and not even then. So I would, you know, I'm having this like imaginary conversation with Bernadette Mayer about motherhood in the shower. Right. And I sort of, you know, I, the, the self critique at the end of the poem is just like, well, it's easy for you to be a mother poet, but for me, it was a lot harder, you know? So this way in which you're constantly having these conversations with other poets or with expectations of how you're going to use this thing that you know in your own work or in your life you know what what is Spanish going to become how am I going to pass it down it's called heritage speaker from my other tongue what good is it to erect of absence, a word like radiator, when we've vents that expel heat as air. When I teach my daughter to speak and build a woman out of me that is not her mother, but some propriety, a treason of simple subjects, I never had use in Spanish for the word barn, and then woke up and a horse was staring at me, Joe Brainerd. Softly pureed, cooled, this diction dumb in either tongue. But what is a mother's warmth, if not her wit? Bernadette 
Mayer turns to me in the shower and says, motherhood is now fashionable among the girl poets. If so, I want my hat, a feather in it, Mallarmé's, in fact. And then I realized after I wrote the poem that I had misremembered the two lines by Joe Brainerd. It wasn't a woke up and a horse was staring at me. And I have the, the correction at the end of the book and also turns to me in the shower is a quote from a Bernadette Mayer poem, except it's a misquote. And I decided to leave it in because part of the way that, you know, the language of others kind of circulates in our head is that we end up kind of making them our own. We misremember them or we misquote them and they they become so a part of our heads that the official version, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's besides the point. It becomes sort of integrated and woven into our own kind of existence. <laughs> I think poetry is always trying to lead you somewhere and there's always the danger of overcorrecting and the danger of kind of setting yourself in the path that you thought that you should be going in like oh well I didn't want to write about this or I didn't want to say this so I'm going to oh you know get off this path and go back on and then you find that that path isn't interesting because you're so aware of where you're going that you don't let language lead you in an interesting way. You've just been listening to episode 61 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This episode was the first in our special series on translation and featured poet translator Rosa Alcala speaking about her own poetry and about her work as a translator, especially her work translating Chilean-born artist Cecilia Vicuña. To learn more about Alcala and Vicuña, and for links to the people and texts mentioned in this episode, visit commonpodcast.com, where you can also support Commonplace by becoming a patron of the show and sign up for our occasional newsletter. We've got some fabulous books for our patrons this episode. Patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes My Other Tongue, Undocumentaries, and The Lust of Unsentimental Waters, all by Rosa Alcala, new and selected poems of Cecilia Vicuña, Spit Temple, and About to Happen, all by Cecilia Vicuña, and Edward Glissant's The Poetics of Relation. Many thanks to Future Poem, Shearsman Books, Kelsey Street Press, Ugly Duckling Press, Siglio Press, and University of Michigan Press for donating these books to our raffle. Patrons will also get access to sound files of Alcala reading more poems, text of a few selections from Spit Temple, and the audio of a reading at McNally Jackson Books celebrating the release of the new and selected poems of Cecilia Vicuña, courtesy of the author, the translators, McNally Jackson, and Rena Rosenwasser from Kelsey Street Press. If you liked this episode, and we hope you did, please let us know via Twitter, Instagram, or email. 
What did you think of the new format? Did you like the shorter episode and only hearing Rosa's voice? If you're not already a patron, please consider becoming one. Right now, we're supported entirely by patron donations. On our website, you can also find liner notes for this episode. Most of the audio you heard was recorded by me, Rachel Zucker, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on the morning of September 28, 2018. The rest is from the reading recorded at McDally Jackson Books later that same evening. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Becca DiGregorio and produced by me, Becca, Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, and Doreen Wang. Many thanks to Nathaniel Wokstein for our new translation series theme music, to Daniel Schiffman, our advisor in all things, to the presses who send us books, to all the people who shared their voices and languages for our translation trailer, to the patrons who make Commonplace possible, and to you, dear listener. Thank you for listening. Last but not least, I'm launching a new immersive audio project, Sound Machine, the podcast. Please visit soundmachinepodcast.com for more information about this new project. Take care, and thank you for listening.